want to take a few minutes to tell you about our latest sponsor, Benevity. Benevity is a company I know really well. Not only are they led by wonderful people who are driven by purpose and a desire to make a positive difference to the world, they're also global leaders in their field. So Benevity's technology facilitates workplace giving, volunteering, as well as grants management. It helps employees to deliver positive and meaningful impact through the support of different causes and different charities. And I know from personal experience, having used it only last week, that it really works and it's effective and efficient. So I wanted to give to a cause. I wanted my employee to match it. It all happened through through clicks online. Check them out. Go to the website, benevity.com. Highly recommend checking them out as a potential for your corporate, your business. Let's get back to the show. sense of urgency particularly i think if you're thinking about you know environmental issues and climate a lot of what needs to be done needs to be done now or within the next couple of decades certainly purpose d podcast speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders people who are making the world a better place here's your host mark longbottom everyone welcome to purposely with rod davis founder of why philanthropy matters the former head of policy at the Charities Aid Foundation. He is a well-known thinker and commentator on philanthropy and civil society issues. He has his own podcast, is expert residence at the Peers Foundation. Rod is an absolute fountain of knowledge when it comes to philanthropy, and his passion shines through. Really enjoyed our conversation. We tried to cover as much as possible. We also went into his personal journey. I think you're going to enjoy the episode. Before that, could I ask you, if you haven't already, to please hit follow on whatever platform you're sitting on, whether it's Spotify, whether it's Apple Podcasts. It really helps me to get the message out there. Enjoy the episode. Rod Davis, welcome to Purpose Podcast. Hi there. Thanks for having me. You're the founder of Why Philanthropy Matters. What does it do and what is its mission? Um, well, Why Philanthropy Matters is a new organization and a, a website that I set up last year. And the, the idea behind it really, I mean, firstly, was to pull together a bunch of things that I was already doing in terms of doing a podcast of my own called Philanthropisms, um, but also kind of a lot of writing, blogs, articles and things, basically all centered around trying to think through why philanthropy is interesting what it is how it works what role it plays in society and to try and do that from a slightly kind of bigger picture perspective than i think sometimes people do look at it because i think one of the things that long bugged me is that philanthropy is often written off as if it's some sort of weird niche concern even within the wider nonprofit world and and actually to me it's something that's kind of pretty fundamental to how society works it's kind of you know the third pillar alongside the state and the market when it comes to deciding how to you know meet people's welfare needs and redistribute resources and so actually it touches on all of these things from kind of history to law to politics to to economics when you look at it from that point of view to me it's kind of endlessly fascinating and i'm just trying to kind of convey that sense to other people and get them to to share in that perspective wonderful and I've been digesting. You know, yeah, you're prolific. So you've ri- you've written a book. You've you write regularly. You have your own podcast, which I definitely want to talk to you about. You're a researcher. Um, you know, thought leader. All of those things. But do you know what the nagging thing that I had in my mind when I was doing the research on you was? And just bear with me for a minute. But Rod, tomorrow 
you have a huge windfall, you inherit a whole lot of money, or you win the lottery, want to give your money away, how would you, Rod Davis, how would you approach giving? Would you be an effective philanthropist? Would you be sort of um, Scott McKenzie style and, and you know, be high trust model, no application process? But have you thought about this? But how would you approach giving your money away? Yeah, I, I definitely have thought about it. Actually, I wrote an article towards the end of last year, um, basically kind of outlining this this game I sometimes play in their head, which I call the thing, you know, you're the philanthropist now, where you basically, you know, you have to do precisely this. You kind of assume you've come into some money somehow, and then you've got to genuinely ask yourself the question of, okay, how would I decide, you know, where to give, what to give to, what sort of approach to take? Because I think often in the sort of work that I do, it's easy to be quite theoretical. And then you can sometimes sort of think there are easy answers to some of these questions. But if you put yourself in the shoes of somebody genuinely having to make those decisions, you realize they're, they're actually very far from black and white usually. And there's lots of kind of trade-offs and compromises. And um, I think where I've come down on it myself, and it's not that it's you know the right answer, because I don't think there is any right answer to how to do philanthropy necessarily, but how I would probably do it. I think I would probably set up a foundation rather than just give it straight over to a nonprofit, although that's a perfectly legitimate approach, because I'd admit to myself I've got enough ego that I would quite, quite like to have my own thing and control over it. I think there'd be a lot of focus on kind of environmental issues and biodiversity, just because that's something that I kind of have a particular passion for. And my dad's a natural history photographer, so I was sort of brought up going on trips to the countryside looking for flowers and bugs and things. And, you know, I'd, things like I'd, I'd have a foundation, but I'd make sure from the outset it only had a limited lifespan. So I'd probably set myself a target of spending it all in 20 years or something like that. I'd make sure I thought about where I invested the money as well as where I gave it. I think I wouldn't be a full-on effective altruist because I kind of I have some issues with that as a model. I think I would err more towards the kind of trust-based approach that somebody like Mackenzie Scott's taking, but I'd probably try my best to find a balance in the middle because, again, I don't think it's an either-or decision. But you know, as you can probably tell, I don't have any kind of straightforward, easy answer to it, but I've definitely thought about it, and it's something in kind of every couple of months or so I, I do take a moment to say, right, have I changed my mind on any of that? How would I do this stuff if in the unlikely event that I ever ended up being a philanthropist myself? Yeah. And just drawing out a couple of those. So spend down based on the fact that you'd want to get the money out there being effective or useful as quickly as possible. And it would, the good would effectively be compounded. Like that would be the approach with that. Yeah. I think, I think it's, it's, it's partly that. I think it's partly this a sense of urgency, particularly, I think, if you're thinking about, you know, environmental issues and climate, you know, a lot of what needs to be done needs to be done, you know, now or within the next couple of decades, certainly. So setting out to have a view to doing things over the sort of 100 years or more and passing it on down the generations seems a, a bit odd. I think also, you know, I've, I spent a lot of time looking at the history of, of philanthropy. It's kind of a big part of what I do. And one thing you find, you know, pretty quickly when you do that is the whole question of whether philanthropy should be something that that exists in perpetuity and you're sort of allowed to set up endowed structures that you pass on down the generations, or whether there should be time limits on it, is a debate that's kind of raged for a long, long time. Um, and I think the arguments against perpetuity and the idea that actually there's something a bit unhealthy about allowing a donor 
at one point in time to sort of set in stone what it is that they want to do and focus on and how they want the world to be. And then for that still to be influencing the world in a hundred or two year, 200 years time, I, I kind of buy those arguments. So I think I would probably, you know, recognize that in my own philanthropy and say, you know, let, let's give it 30 years. And then at that point, if I decide I still want to keep going, I'll just set up another structure rather than keep this one going forever. Mm. And based on, you know, environmental issues, then well, there may not be a second chance of this, right? So, Well, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, the sort of depressing slash scary thought. But, you know, somebody said to me, they're like, you know, it, that, it's fine if you want to set up a perpetual endowment, but if you're going to be sitting around on a scorched earth and in a hundred years time counting your, you know, your endowment investment income, that's a slightly peculiar, you know, vision to have. So, you know, I kind of, again, that, that was quite a uh, stark warning to me. Yeah. And history, like you mentioned, is, is important to you. And, and it really resonated for me around history important because it stops us on one element, it stops us making the same mistakes again. And, and thinking in relation to philanthropy, but I kind of more broadly is that we're kind of, and I'm probably guilty of this, but guilty of, you know, these sort of buzzwords around um, purpose driven organizations. Um, you know, purpose and profit combined. Uh, and I know from, you know, your, the work that you have done, but also looking back in the past and some very, you know, a hundred years ago, very old organizations that did a lot of the stuff that we kind of countenance as, as mo terribly modern, but that's a key part of your work, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. And it's, you know, in, in some ways, it's the cheap trick part of the, the history stuff I do, which is whenever there's a conversation about philanthropy and particularly if as you say somebody go, makes the claim that you know this trend is is absolutely new and it's never been done before and you know there's a new generation of philanthropists that are doing things in an unprecedented way it, you can almost always point out that actually this is just part of a cycle and that we've seen this stuff before you know which is not as i say you've got to be careful about just drawing direct comparisons from history and also about it becoming a, a cheap trick but it is true that when it comes to all sorts of trends, you know, the idea, as you were saying there, of combining profit and purpose in approaches like social investment or impact investing or social enterprise, in a way, it's only relatively recently that we've thought that there were any clear dividing lines between business and philanthropy anyway. If you go back in history, people were, you know, blurring those lines all over the place. And so actually, when you look back to history and, and how pe people kind of combined making money and giving money away there's all kinds of interesting lessons about you know how we could be doing that again now and also lots of you know useful warnings about things that we might want to make sure that we we avoid so i think i find kind of history an endlessly useful resource when it comes to thinking about philanthropy in the present i sort of noted down from your work was that purpose and profit is possible but as long as purpose comes first so purpose being the most important now, that might not necessarily have been your words, but there seems some sense in that from me because otherwise the profit's always going to get in the way, potentially. And I'm thinking of, you know, businesses who weren't necessarily started up in that way or their founding documents don't lean in that way. But any thoughts on that? I think, you know, the reality is that the drive to profit is is a very strong one. And unfortunately, often, you know, at an individual level or an organizational level ends up outweighing the drive to to social purpose and and sometimes that's just because 
it's easier to do the profit bit. You know, there are kind of hard and fast figures attached to it. You know how much money you've made. On the other side, it's often quite difficult to measure the the social good that you're doing. You know, we don't have the same kind of metrics, and maybe we can never have those those sorts of metrics. And also, when you look at some of the the examples in history, people have set out with good intentions to do something that kind of combines profit motive and a, and a social purpose. But then, over time, as it becomes clear that you know, if you want to service the needs of making profits, it's actually usually easier to give to you know, people who are in slightly less problematic situations. So you see kind of loan charities from the the 18th and 19th century. Instead of giving to genuinely poor people, they sort of started giving to not so, you know, badly off middle class people, and then eventually became almost entirely profit based. And so over time, that original you know, purpose motive just gets diminished and diminished until you suddenly realize that you've kind of lost sight of of that so that purpose bit and you've ended up it becoming entirely for profit. And do people draw on your expertise? Do you get calls fairly regularly from, you know, whether it's wealthy uh, individuals or organizations who are, you know, putting more focus on on giving philanthropy? Do people draw on your on your expertise? Do you get calls? Yeah, I do. And and people obviously kind of, you know, read the stuff that I've written and, and listen to the podcast and get it that way. And sometimes you don't know who those people are until a long time later and somebody tells you that they'd read or, you know, heard something that you'd, you'd said. And that I, I, you know, I love it when that happens because it's always good to know that there is somebody out there finding this stuff useful. I do also, as you say, get, you know, calls from a small number of individual philanthropists. You've got to be a relatively kind of self-reflective philanthropist to to want to kind of dig into things at the level that I usually kind of dig into them. But there there are philanthropists out there, I think, who who like this sort of stuff and value the perspective. I think even more than that, a lot of people who work in the foundation world or who work in the philanthropy sector as advisors or in kind of infrastructure bodies or academics you know they certainly I've got lots of contacts with them and I'm often kind of speaking at their events or kind of advising on things and kind of trying to bring that mix of historical perspective but also kind of broader perspective about philanthropy in the present and you know I hope it's useful it seems to work for for enough people at the moment so and is there a particular topic or subject that and I'm thinking really around the future of or where artificial intelligence kicks in and, and maybe technology. I know that's been a focus for you as well. But when you start looking at the future of philanthropy, is there anything that excites you most? And Yeah, I mean, I think there is huge potential around the way in which technology can be used to make philanthropy better and to do things in different ways. And I think certainly around artificial intelligence i think i'm doing a bit of work on this at the moment i think there's all kinds of interesting possibilities in terms of how it can be used by philanthropic organizations and funders to achieve their missions in different ways but also i think we're starting to see that artificial intelligence is having a real impact on the kind of processes and and ways in which people in all sorts of industries work in terms of offering new ways of automating things and kind of efficiencies. And we're, and that's only just starting to trickle into the world of philanthropy. So I think we're going to see a huge amount of that over over the coming years. And I think that is is exciting. Um, as with a lot of things to do with technology, there's the good side and there's the bad side. So I think there's there's also a lot more need to be thinking about and discussing some of the downsides of technology and the potential negative impacts and 
what that means for philanthropy and also what role philanthropy can play in addressing them. And, you know, there are funders out there and philanthropic organizations that are starting to focus some of their work on things like, um, you know, the impact of um, algorithmic bias on marginalized communities and, and that sort of thing. But again, I think those are problems that are going to get a lot worse quite quickly. And philanthropy really needs to make sure that it kind of keeps up to speed with the, the pace of technological development. So, so yeah, I think there's, there's a whole load of really, really interesting stuff there when we, when we look to the future. Um, and then I guess the, the other thing, not nothing to do with technology that makes me uh, kind of optimistic about philanthropy in, in the coming years is that it, it feels to me, even in the time I've been doing this stuff over the last 15 years or so, that we've moved from from a situation where taking the kind of perspective that, that I take and sort of thinking about philanthropy and what it is and its role was really, really marginal, even within the world of philanthropy, and you'd get all sorts of odd looks from people. But I feel like that's become a lot more mainstream and conversations in philanthropy about, you know, what it is, how it relates to inequality, um, kind of how it relates to a desire to, to achieve justice, you know, focusing on where money comes from as well as where it's spent, all these kinds of things. I think of there's, there's loads more thought and discussion going on about them. And I think that can only make philanthropy better in the future. Changing tack for a minute and, and really want to understand how you arrived in, in the role you've arrived in and, and in philanthropy. You studied at Oxford University and uh, your final degree was in mathematics and philosophy. Any sort of hint about the direction of your career might take then or? Absolutely none. No, um, no I, I sort of, yeah, I did maths and philosophy as an undergraduate and then I started doing some postgraduate stuff and was launching out and kind of doing a philosophy PhD. And I was going to, you know, I was very interested in the philosophy of of maths. And I just had a moment at some point where I kind of was in a room with, you know, the 20 people who were also interested in the philosophy of maths. And I kind of realized that they were probably always going to be the same 20 people throughout my career, that you just kind of end up talking to them. And that just slightly scared me and made me question whether it was what I genuinely wanted to be doing. So I, I left academia at that point and thought I'd quite like to do something that uses the same broad range of you know research and, and analytic skills, but maybe a bit more in the real world. And I, and I kind of fell into it. I got a job in a think tank, and it just so happened the project that I got taken on to work on was on philanthropy, and particularly sort of looking at philanthropy in the city of London. So I straight out of the gate, I went and was a researcher and kind of went and interviewed loads of senior investment bankers and hedge fund managers and this kind of thing about their philanthropy. And I just found it fascinating. And I've basically been in it ever since and kind of gone further and further down the rabbit hole. And, you know, the more that I've dug into it, the more I've realized I don't know about it. And so I kind of constantly keep learning and that that keeps it, you know, fresh and interesting for me because I'm, you know, I'm by nature a generalist. I like to kind of cover lots of different things. And I think philanthropy is something that really lends itself to that because as we were saying at the outset it kind of touches on all kinds of different areas so on one day you can be digging into the weeds on you know macroeconomics and then the next day you can be sort of getting to grips with charity law and you know that keeps it you know that makes it fascinating i think and looking back to your you know before university into your childhood what, what was the sort of thinking around giving what was the sort of culture around giving in your family do you even remember it being a thing at home 
I don't know that it it was hugely. I mean, like a lot of kids, I did. You know, I remember doing you know fundraising at school and holding home Blue Peter, bring and buy sale, and that kind of stuff. So definitely, like a load of kids, and I see it with my own kids now. You know, they kind of they have an innate sense of social conscience and wanting to help other people. And probably like a lot of people with me, that dropped off a bit in my teenage years when I was you know too too cool for that and had other concern, <laughs> concerns on my mind. If anything, my sister was the one who who kind of did that stuff more. She was incredibly civic minded and was you know like head girl of the school and then did lots of volunteer work and you know she she works you know went on to work in in the charity sector as well. But it's not something you know even at university I would have had my peg, self pegged down particularly as oh you know charity is a big part of my life apart from you know just giving regularly to to a few different things. It's really been more through my work that it's kind of made me think about it more and that's then had a knock-on effect kind of you know on my own life and my own sort of thoughts about it as well and i think it it has a lot of drama it has politics um it has power and uh, differences it is it there's a lot going on in philanthropy it definitely reflects society and also shapes it yeah i think that that's right and it's funny you say drama there because it's that's the other element of it is particularly if it's you know the word philanthropy is somewhat confusing and not everybody you know likes it because are we talking just about the giving of the very very rich or are we talking about you know everybody's giving i tend to think more that we need to be talking about you know everyone and it's not just about wealth but there is something you know specific and particular about the giving of very very wealthy people and when you get to that level there's also there's an interest in the the individual stories of people and what drives them and kind of what makes them tick and also you know at a societal level what their philanthropy is doing and kind of how they're leaving a mark on the world and i think that combination of the individual and kind of the large scale you know thinking about structures and systems that's another thing that's that's really fascinating about philanthropy because it it always has those two elements to it and I, you can't really separate the two because at the end of the day it is all about individuals and their decisions yeah but then those decisions all get added up together and we get this big system that has a pretty you know massive impact on on our society yeah so i think you know it's fascinating from that point of view as well yeah i'm always fascinated with sort of the philanthropy advisor role and you know it's a bit different to i think to a lot of uh, other advisory roles or maybe around finances or tax but there's actually you said it right at the start there's actually not one way of doing philanthropy it's not a right way of doing philanthropy and i'm always fascinated to know if if that's what advisors get tempted to do is say oh you know it has to be terribly strategic it has to be effective um you know you have to follow a business model it has to be analytical or the opposite you know it can be really trust-based and and stand standoffish you know once removed so you know that idea around supporting people, I think a lot of it has to be kind of person-focused, right? It has to be focused on their motivations, where the money come came from or comes from. That's crucial as well, who the stakeholders are. Absolutely. And, you know, I think people who, you know, the, the, adv- the advisors that I've met who I think are genuinely really, really good at philanthropy advice and offer a lot of value, I think do recognize that, that there is no one right way of doing it. And also, I think they don't start from the point of view of, you know, here are the products and services that you need. Because I think there's a form of philanthropy advice, which is basically, you know, how do you set up a foundation? What are the tax implications? You know, what are the legal structures and that sort of stuff? And that stuff is important, but it has to start surely before that with a conversation about what is it that you value in the world? What is it that drives you? What's your 
you know, attitude to money and wealth and inequality or other things you care about. And and so actually, it's a different conversation from the one that you normally have with an accountant or a lawyer or, you know, a tax advisor. It has to be about, you know, values and sort of personal views about things. And that's, I think that's uncomfortable for some people, particularly who kind of come to advice from, you know, the wealth management or the, the accountancy industry. So, so I think philanthropy advice is still an, an odd thing from uh, from that point of view. But you know, I do I do think when offering that advice, I, I do worry when people sort of present, well, this is the right way of doing philanthropy, or the you know the only good way of doing philanthropy, because I think it shouldn't all necessarily be driven by what the donor wants and cares about, because I think it's healthy to have some challenge as well and to push people to sort of interrogate their own drivers and their own thoughts and you know maybe kind of think more about how they do things so that they can be more effective and and kind of help people you know that help the people in communities that they want to help as much as possible but at the end of the day you you do have to be pragmatic and realistic about the fact that that it, you also need to acknowledge that people are only going to do philanthropy and keep doing it if they do get some sense of reward and and kind of satisfaction from it and I think if you sort of turn to a donor and, and say, right, well, you've got to do it this way, even if that you don't like doing that, and that's the only way of doing it, well, they're probably just going to say, no, thanks, I'm not that bothered. And then nobody ends up winning. So do you think, you know, you kind of have to balance what the donor wants with, you know, some of your own views about the best ways of doing philanthropy and find that, that kind of healthy middle ground? Yeah. And, and your example, you, your caveat at the start was to, you know, you'd want some to have some fun with it on a personal level. So, you, you know, you create, create a foundation, whether it was in your name or not. But, and just heading towards, so I read somewhere that you, you started, so you started off as a research fellow, you, you did some work on philanthropy and that's, that got you sort of involved in that sector. But you also did some work for a headhunter. Is that right? In the early days? God, yeah, that was immediately after I left academia. So that was in a sort of stopgap between getting the job in uh, in the think tank. I need, I mean, a part part of when I stopped doing a PhD was I uh, unsurprisingly didn't have very much money, so I needed to get a job very quickly. And I, I quite how I can't remember, but I ended up working for a sort of small, very high end headhunter. So sort of you know working on kind of CEO appointments in FTSE one hundred companies and board members and this sort of stuff, which was. I was very bad at it and I didn't enjoy it. Basically, it was a lot of like hitting hitting the phones and and trying to get through to senior people and, you know, essentially kind of cold calling them, which is not really my skill set at all. But what it did do was actually give me a massive crash course in how, you know, businesses are structured and how they work and how, you know, kind of uh, salary structures and all these sorts of things uh, work. And, and actually, that was really useful because that was probably the thing that gave me a toe in the door to get on the the think tank project doing research about philanthropy in the city because I was able to say look I I know about this stuff I've been working on this for for the last year or so so actually you know with hindsight um I can't I can't feel too bad about the fact that I did that headhunting for a bit because actually that was probably a crucial you know piece of the puzzle that led me to where I am now um so uh <laughs> if I had my time again would I choose to do that I don't know um but as I say you know kind of you, you just kind of uh, look back on these things and think, well, it's a happy accident. So, uh, and I'm pleased with where it's led me to end up. So, yeah, I'm I'm just guessing like LinkedIn is 
got to be uh, every headhunter's favourite tool, doesn't it? I mean, <laughs> it, it was only just about starting at that at the point when I uh, was doing it. So, but it's it was still really useful, although it's less useful if you're trying to get hold of you know actual kind of CEOs of companies because yeah. they, they don't really respond to they're not LinkedIn they're not emails. necessarily on there. They've got no, staff they're not doing on that. there, uh, and if they are, somebody else is probably managing that profile for them. So, and so you ended up snaring a role at the Charities Aid Foundation, and you were there for you know a fair amount of time. Tell us about getting that role, and do you remember interviewing? Do you remember how you got the job? Yeah, I mean, no, I do. So, in between working for uh, the think tank and and CAF, I actually my wife and I took a, a year off and went. Um, traveling all around the world and doing some volunteer work which was you know absolutely amazing when we came back from that eventually i was sort of casting around various contacts that i'd had from the work that i'd done at the think tank including some people at CAF that i had known because i'd interviewed them uh, and kind of you know involved them in research i've been doing when i was working at the think tank and you know sent an email to somebody saying oh just if you hear of any jobs coming up and it so happened there was one coming up at, at CAF they had a policy role going so I ended up getting that and then I, yeah, I ended, ended up staying for 11 years in the end which probably wasn't the plan from the outset but but I think what happened when I worked at CAF was I'm the role that I was doing changed about three or four times over over that period and particularly while I was there I, I kind of set up what we called an in-house think tank so it was giving thought and we we launched a podcast and we used to do kind of discussion papers about all kinds of really interesting stuff to do with philanthropy um very much you know that's where the idea behind the model for, for why philanthropy matters and that idea of sort of looking at philanthropy from a slightly different perspective came from and you know i was able to write a book while i was at CAF, and they you know they were very supportive and gave me kind of lots of latitude to do all sorts of interesting work and then combine that with doing more sort of straightforward public policy and advocacy work you know that was kind of in line with with CAF's core areas of, of priority so yeah I was there until just under a year and a half ago and and then left to to kind of do the the, the few things that I'm doing now their approach or their sort of focus is there's some breadth to it but what was their sort of bread and butter? What we I know I've used their services in the past, and and we just sort of use them as a default advisor for the organisation I work for. But just outline outline what they do and why they were useful. Yes, I mean absolutely, because people won't necessarily know. So I mean, CAF Charities Aid Foundation is a I mean it's an organisation that that is sort of essentially acts as an intermediary between donors of all of various different kinds and organisations that you know need resources. So as a result of that, it does all kinds of different things. So it's got its own entirely owned bank. It's a you know bank for charities that's owned by a charity, which is really interesting. It's got a, invest, a social investment fund that makes kind of low-cost loans to social organizations. It also, on the philanthropy side, you know, it does it offers advice and services for donors, you know, kind of from relatively modest scale up to very, very sort of, you know, top-end donors, where if they don't necessarily want to set up their own foundation, for instance, they can kind of set up a fund within CAF and then also it can be managed on their behalf and they can get some advice and support uh, as well. And so it, it kind of does all these things. It's also got an international network of uh, certainly uh, at one point it was nine partner offices. I think possibly that's been reorganized slightly since since I've left. So I don't know what the number is now. But, you know, that's fascinating because from, you know, from the public policy point of view, which is where I was, that meant you had all of this expertise and kind of operational stuff to draw on. So actually, 
it gives the organization an enormous amount of legitimacy to talk about a really wide range of things. So again, you know, our policy work could be anything from research about, you know, the, the closing space for civic society and kind of repressive governments clamping down on the rights of association and free speech and that sort of stuff to very nitty gritty stuff about UK tax law on, and how that affects charitable donations. So, you know, it's an, an amazing grounding and a very broad range of, of topics sort of centered around philanthropy and charity. And a full-on role, like stressful? Um, I mean, I, it's funny. I, I, was th- I was talking to somebody, a former colleague, um, yesterday about this. Um, uh, so she's left CAF as well. And we were saying it was, but really when, when that's sort of remembering the, the bit from the pandemic onwards, when like many, many other people, you know, everything shifted and everybody was sort of working from home. And the pace of, of, of what we were doing was just phenomenal because you know, the the challenges facing charities were phenomenal. So we were doing all kinds of policy bits of policy work and also mucking in on a kind of emergency fund that was aimed at kind of supporting organizations during all of the lockdowns and this sort of stuff. And then you look back, you know, a few years before that, and the, the pace of the work then seems incredibly leisurely by comparison. And obviously, what happened, you know, during the pandemic, I think is, it was uh, not a good precedent, it was sort of unsustainable to work at that level. And we we're all slightly still feeling the effects of that i think now at an individual level and and at a sector level you know there's a a lot of issues i think with people having left the sector for other things or or just kind of taking a break from work because of that that sense of burnout so so i think you know it was definitely full on then and on, on you know on other days it could be full on but but it's probably you know it's nothing compared to working in a hospital and you've got to be realistic about that mm. but march 2020 and I know from, you know, a lot of charity leaders were looking into the abyss and, and you know, the social need existed for them off, but the the money was where that was coming from was totally unclear. How to operate, how to treat staff, limited resources. Like, do you recall, like, was that period or was, it, was there a certain day on that period of time in March 2020 where it was the sort of most stressful day in, in the workplace you had had? Or was there anything you recall from that period? I remember working some, you know, a lot. It got very blurry, you know, because it kind of, particularly, I think, the, the most stressful period was that first lockdown when my kids were being homeschooled as well. And we're having to, to sort of, my wife and I were, were both not on furlough or anything like that. So we were working and the kids were at home and we were doing this sort of crazy game of tag where, you know, I would take the morning and try and get both of the kids doing some homeschool and that sort of thing. And then suddenly have to, you know, go straight into a series of meetings in the afternoon, and then my, you know, my wife would be doing it the other way around. So that period was was pretty intense, just because you know we're trying to fit in full time work and also having the kids at, at home the whole time. And I know lots of people, you know, were were having uh, similar challenges. And certainly in terms of the work itself, you know, there were all kinds of meetings internally in in CAF because you were having to stay in touch with people and make more of an effort to do that. And lots of people were working remotely for the first time. I mean, I was lucky and I'd been working remotely for a couple of years already, so I was quite accustomed to it. It wasn't as much of a change for me. And then also, you know, I I was doing things like the policy role, but also with the the podcast and the think tank, I did a whole series of kind of interviews with people from around the sector to find out, you know, what challenges they were facing and how they were responding. And so we were doing that kind of stuff at the the same time and trying to sort of pull that together and then as i say CAF set up this um 
coronavirus emergency fund with some of CAF's own money and then also money from from donors. And actually, you know, lots of people from across the organization were drafted into emergency grant making roles to kind of support on getting that money distributed. So I was doing that as well. And lots of other people in CAF were. So it was it was pretty busy at that point. Mm. And it was some really good things that happened, weren't there, around uh, giving and sort of the uh, some of the walls um, being pulled down or, you know, money just getting out there, like get it out now because it's needed. And decision to leave, like, was that a, I imagine that would be quite a hard one because, you know, head of policy at CAF comes with a, a certain position or standing in the sector. Was it a tough decision for you? And, and what were the sort of main reasons behind it? Um. It it sort of wasn't. It wasn't. I think it it was in the sense that because I'm I wasn't going on to a s- sort of straightforward. You know, this is my next role, and I've applied for it, and I've got the job, and you know, it's just a kind of move from one to the other, which I always knew was going to be the case because I painted myself into this odd little corner where I I was doing something that seemed to ha- to be of use to people, and people found it interesting, but wasn't quite sure what it was so kind of you know i was head of policy at cap but also because of all of the think tank stuff that you know that i've been doing with giving thought and the podcast and writing the book I had all these other elements that weren't really sort of traditional elements of a head of policy role and i kind of wanted to think how can i continue to do that sort of stuff in whatever i do next and so the difficult part was there was always going to be a bit of a leap of faith because it was it was kind of moving from something that you know and that you're comfortable with to something that's slightly unknown luckily a lot of pieces sort of fell into place at the same time and so i was having conversations with the guys at the pairs foundation who i I, one of the things i do now is kind of work in-house with them as a philanthropy expert in in residence and you know that led to sort of conversation about working together and what that might look like which was the genesis of what eventually became why philanthropy matters and then at the same time, also Beth Breeze at the Centre for Philanthropy at University of Kent, um, who I've known for a long time, I was chatting to her anyway and sort of mentioned that I was thinking about doing this stuff. And then that turned into a conversation about me taking on a research fellow role there as well. So I, that's another thing I do uh, kind of one day a week is work at the Centre for Philanthropy. And so I was able to put together a kind of mini portfolio of of things that was definitely enough to make me confident enough to to take the plunge. and. You know, I haven't looked back, I don't think, really, because I've been so busy and I've been able to work on all the sorts of things that I think uh, are really interesting that I haven't felt any sense of regret. And, you know, I really valued my time at, at CAF, but actually it's, it seems like a very long time ago in a lot of ways. Yeah, Beth Bree's former guest of, of Purposely and a and, ah. you know, real amazing uh, orator on on all things philanthropy. And um, I think she, one of her books is In Defense of Philanthropy, so definitely passionate about it. Uh, one of the many books. And I guess what it looks like is probably quite exciting for you because you could focus on what you're really passionate about and you have more agency, like you have more, it's more about the value you add, necess- not necessarily working for a, a larger organization. I think that's right. And I kind of, I think with, even when I was at, at CAF in a way, you know, there's always sort of authority or reputation that comes with the role that you're filling and then there's there's just the sort of personal authority and reputation that you can build and i think that's true of anyone because there are people across the philanthropy sector who you know you have you know and sort of respect 
because of the job that they do, and maybe you also respect them as people. And then there are other people who might be working at a relatively, on paper, junior level somewhere, but you know that they're people you really rate and actually kind of value their their opinion and, and that sort of thing, and probably will go on to bigger and better things in the future. And I kind of always felt at CAF that I had gone beyond my role in that sense, in that I had a pretty well-developed network of contacts around the world on philanthropy issues that wasn't necessarily just because of the job title that I had on on my business card. And so actually just transitioning to the point where it is just me and I'm kind of free to do the things that that I want to do. And I've I've got, you know, affiliations. Obviously the fact that I'm able to have a foot in academia with the University of Kent really, really helps. But then the stuff around why philanthropy matters, it's basically up to me to make a success of that or not, which that really appeals to me because I'm I've got quite a sort of DIY punk ethic around things, which is like I like to just kind of get on and do them. So, so when we set up a podcast at CAF, me and and my colleague at the time, Adam Pickering, um, we just one day decided that we wanted to do it, and we we didn't really ask permission. We just sort of, sort of did it, and then asked forgiveness later. Brilliant. And luckily, you know, CAF was was good about that sort of stuff. They often, you know, would say, "Oh, you know, we're surprised that this has happened, but it seems good, so you know, carry on." And yeah, that's kind of. I don't anymore need to ask anyone else's forgiveness for doing those things. But I do, if I decide on any given day that, oh, it would be interesting to do, you know, an article about this or a podcast about that, I can just go and do it. So, you know, so I do. And part of being punk or punk, having a punk (laughs) ethic is not really caring necessarily about the fallout or how it lands or, but I'm interested, like what sort of process, because, you know, you're really putting your thoughts and views out there you know, you're not terribly prescriptive about taking a stand or whatever, but still, you know, like from the subject you choose, the research you do, like what sort of process do you go through? What what does it look like? And then how do you feel emotionally when you kind of, you know, send off into the world? Yeah, that's a a really good question because it's it's the sort of thing I think about to myself quite a lot. I think in in terms of how I choose what to focus on, I sometimes kick myself for it not being, you know, necessarily as systematic as as it should be. I sort of feel like I should have, you know, more of a of a process. But then I remind myself that actually I'm kind of drawing on, you know, more than a decade's worth of having spent all of my time thinking about and working on philanthropy issues. So actually it's kind of informed by that. I think when I choose, you know, to do a podcast or to write an article. It's often the timing of it or the choice to do a particular one at a particular moment in time will be because there's something that's happened, you know, in the news or within the sector where I think, oh, that's interesting. That's an opportunity to kind of do that thing that's maybe been in the back of my mind for for quite a while and something to sort of hook it to. So if there's a big story in philanthropy, I'll often kind of write something about that and then, you know, use that as an opportunity to to explore a particular theme or, you know, similarly with um with the podcast. And then, you know, it's not, it's funny you sort of say, you know, the part of doing a, having a, a punk approach and it's a kind of, it's a slightly odious thing for me to have said. I don't, I don't kind of count myself as a, a punk philanthropy researcher. Um, but the, you know, it's not caring about how it lands. And I, and I do to the extent that like I want it to be of interest to people and to be of value. And if I was just writing things that I thought were interesting and nobody else cared, I would stop and, you know, take stock and do something different. And so I think the feedback that I get from people saying, yes, this is interesting. And, you know, this is genuinely kind of helped my thinking about something. 
that that's the stuff that I find really valuable because that tells me I'm broadly on the right track. I think where I do subscribe to the idea that you can't care too much is that I I always used to find the most difficult thing working in a big organization like CAF is when it would be more of people sort of starting from the point of view of, you know, what is it that the audience wants? And then let's kind of work backwards to the content from that. I, I think you have to have a, the sort of slight bit of more confidence that what you find interesting and what you genuinely want to say and think about, you know, will also appeal to other people. I guess it's a it's a bit like, you know, being a musician or a or a writer or something like that. You you kind of have to do the thing that you think is good and just hope that that, that everybody else agrees with you. I think if you start from doing it via focus group, I don't know that that ever really works. So I don't think that makes for very compelling writing or content. Yeah, good point. And, and um how do you deal with the haters? Or have you have you not had many or any? Do, do you know what I I don't have that many, and maybe I think it's partly because uh, one of the things I am just by nature is I'm sort of relatively kind of I, I tend to sit in the the middle of things just because I'm quite interested in thinking. Okay, genuinely, what's the other side of of this argument, and let's give it a fair hearing. And and I think in a way this made me quite bad at philosophy because all of my essays when I was at university were always kind of. Somebody says this, somebody also says this, both are very interesting and in conclusion. And then, you know, just something quite quite bland, I was thought. I wasn't very good at taking a very strong line on one side or another. And I think I worry sometimes that I'm a bit too much like that on philanthropy issues. But also I think that's a strength when actually too often in the philanthropy world, things do kind of collapse into easy binaries it's either this thing is good or this thing is bad and if you're on this one side the people on the other side of this debate are are the enemy and you know i think that's something that happens a lot across society anyway as we have an increasing amount of polarization and i think we're definitely seeing it in philanthropy so actually being able to occupy that space in the middle where you say no we need to actually engage with nuance and kind of listen to the points of view of people on both sides and Yes, disagree with them, but do so in a way that's genuinely sort of productive and respectful. Actually, I think that's that's a strength, and I think that we need space for a lot more of that in the philanthropy world. So I think because I often sit in that space and and I'm not writing things or saying things in an overly polemic way, I tend not to rub people up the wrong way too much. So I don't I don't tend to get too many haters. Although I'm going to touch wood at this point, just in case anybody listening <laughs> decides to become a hater. Yeah, and and you know sometimes taking that really strong um, point of view, um, well, increasingly so, it you know gets the sound bites, it, it gets the attention, and by being you know like as you say, uh, non-binary is as um, sometimes means you don't get the attention you want or, or should get for the work. In terms of your like what what your week looks like, so you, you've got a lot of different pressures. So you've you know you've got the the website and the platform that you're growing. Um, you got your your work for the um, for the center. Um, are you are you a disciplined human being? Are you someone who um, you know like do you have a are you routine person? How how do you sort of structure your week? Um, <laughs> again, probably not not as much as I as I should. I guess the starting point is usually that that you know if I'll have meetings in, which these days tends to to start with you know video meetings and and calls and. Uh, and that sort of thing, or you know, podcasts, uh, either my own or, or guesting on on people's like this. 
And then that gives a bit of structure to the week. Most of the time I work from home. So unless I'm on trips somewhere down to London or something like that, again, you know, that, that can sort of fill up part of my week. And then in between that, yeah, kind of the most challenging thing about what I do now is remembering all of the various <laughs> irons that I've got in the fire, particularly with my various different hats on. So I do need to keep a sort of running series of, of daily updated to-do lists and make sure, and I have fixed points. So, you know, every two weeks I've got a podcast to do, so I have to make sure that I'm kind of got the content ready for that. I sort of keep track of how much content has gone on the website so that that's constantly, you know, being refreshed and, and kind of uh, keeps being something that's sort of dynamic and regularly updated. And then I've got, you know, longer term projects as well usually so i've got so last year I, I was working on a book which is coming out in march this year I'm working on another book project at the moment with beth breeze actually and doing some research uh, for that so that's that's kind of long long term so that will probably be out in 2025 but i think that mixture of very immediate stuff that is going to come out you know in the next couple of days and longer term projects that are you know on the scale of a couple of years i really like that as well because it you know you have that sort of mixture of immediacy and things that work at a slightly slower pace and so why philanthropy matters is is that a for-profit company but with a social mission what's what's the sort of setup and and then also what would success like and look like in sort of two years three years yeah absolutely well uh, so, I mean, structure-wise, I mean, it's it's a not-for-profit not in the sense of it's not designed to generate any profit other than, you know, paying me a salary so that I can afford to do the work and then reinvesting the, the profits in it. It's currently set up as a company limited by shares only because the, for various reasons, when I set it up, the, the advisors that I had were, were, they sort of said, you could set it up as a charity, but maybe just give it a bit of time to sort of see how it works and then... I think my long-term plan on that side is maybe to turn it into something like a community interest company. And I only haven't done that because all of that administrative stuff about setting up an organization and running it alongside actually doing the work and generating the content, you know, that's, that's sort of the straw that broke the camel's back. So I've given it enough structure that it sort of exists as a separate entity and, uh, you know, kind of can take funding and you know uh, is is there so it's got all the various bits and pieces around the, the infrastructure that's needed the website and the podcast and that sort of stuff and and longer term um you know i will kind of think about what that structure best looks like and i guess that goes also to to the point about what's the long-term plan for it because part of what i'm doing with it is is testing the you know how to make that sustainable so i'm very fortunate in that initially why philanthropy matters has been supported with some core funding from pairs foundation which is you know absolutely great and i'm really grateful to them for that that support but i guess the question is does it only work if it's got that kind of core grant funding and if so you know as the year as you know kind of move into year two and three i'll probably need to think about trying to you know how do i bring on board potentially other organizations that might want to fund it as well or do i need to think about diversifying into other forms of kind of generating some revenue so that, that can cover the the costs of the organization and whether you know what that looks like whether it's you know paid for content or or kind of doing you know consulting work as well because i know 
other organizations in the sector that that sort of position themselves as think tanks, quite often that's how they make it work, is you do the consultancy work that sort of pays the bills and then use some of that money to do the think tank work. The danger is always that the you you know the consultancy work ends up becoming the thing that drives everything that you do and my concern would only be that if if that's the only way of making why philanthropy matters sustainable over the long term what i don't want to do is sort of get drawn into focusing most of my time on consultancy work that isn't actually generating the interesting content that was the point in the first place yeah which I guess goes, you know, right back to what we were saying earlier about combining profit and purpose is, is that you then get dragged into generating the income and the profit. And the danger is you then lose sight of why it is that you started out doing the thing in the first place. Yeah, the mission. And and the Peers Foundation, like, I know their themes are uh, broader, but a real interest in philanthropy and helping to spread the, dare say, best practice or certainly, um, you know, helping guide organizations people the sector but yeah a real keen interest in in philanthropy and and, you know wanting to play their part yeah absolutely so um and they've, they've long had that interest and so kind of a large bulk of what they do is around things like kind of citizenship and civic engagement so they do lots of work funding organizations that work with young people whether that's kind of in schools or also through things like kind of girl guiding and scouts and and all this this loads and loads of that sort of stuff they also have a kind of separate strand of work that's always been there that is is about the whole idea of let's try and understand philanthropy better so that we can get more of it and when we do get more of it it is you know better quality philanthropy so you know they've long also been um the kind of core supporters of the sense of philanthropy at the university of kent as well you know, and they've funded other bits of work, kind of campaigns and and things around trying to get more giving. I think the challenge is just finding things to fund that sit in that that space. So, which is great for me because luckily that's exactly the stuff I want to be doing. So, I think that you know that relationship that I've got with pairs has been really great. Hopefully for them as well, because you know I'm genuinely trying to use the work that I do to help people to kind of think more and think better about philanthropy and that's something that that you know pairs are kind of really really committed to as well so yeah you know hopefully long may that continue looking to the future and just is there a person or an organization that just excites you in the space that you would call out i mean that's a really hard question i know but or maybe it's a, a theme or a, or a, you know something you focused on in your podcast but is there something that really excites you about their part they're going to play in philanthropy Oh, that is interesting. Um, oh, who, who? Oh, god, it's difficult. I mean, there are there are definitely topics and themes that I'm interested in. I'm trying to think about who, and there's lots of people I rate. I guess one one thing that I'm I'm really interested in is the sort of growth of networks rather than organisations within the sector. And I, but I don't mean so much, you know, the sort of networks that are themselves organizations so the kind of you know extinction rebellion black lives matter stuff but i mean networks of people who work themselves in organizations but are also kind of joining together you know horizontally rather than through their organizations and so what i mean by that is examples like the grant givers movement or the the community that's built up around participatory grant making where 
lots of people so around grant givers it's lots of people who work as uh, in the foundation sector as grant as grant makers of one sort or another but are kind of joining up with other like-minded grant makers to try and think through some of these you know challenges around around where philanthropy sits in relation to inequality and kind of how you do it in a way that genuinely kind of drives more equity and justice and that sort of stuff and i think it's really interesting because it gives people, again, you're going to something we were saying before, who don't necessarily have authority just because of the the role that they sit in in an organization, but it gives them an opportunity to join together with others. And then actually, collectively, they do have more ability to influence. And we've seen some of those networks become quite influential in the charity sector, certainly. So I think we'll see more and more of that because i think there are kind of more and more people in the philanthropy world who are genuinely asking themselves some quite tough questions about you know whether the ways in which we're doing things are producing you know good in the world or whether actually we need to quite radically change them if we want to kind of carry on making philanthropy a force for good so i think we'll see a lot more coming out of that in the coming years rod davis massive thank you for joining me on pepsi thanks for having me mark Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. I hope you like what you're hearing, because I sure do. 